an online program for people with long COVID. Justice in a heart transplant patient. Can electronic cigarettes actually help people quit using nicotine? And improving outcome in strokes due to bleeding. That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I'd like to toss the ball straight to you, and I'd like you to talk about this issue in JAMA about, let's call it equity, with regard to heart transplants. Heart transplant ends up being the preferred therapy for people with advanced heart failure. And that's because the one-year survival after heart transplantation is 90%. The conditional half-life is 13 years. So we've really made a lot of advances with heart failure, but there aren't enough heart to go around. And more than one third of the candidates that are waiting for our transplant either die or they're removed from the waiting list without receiving one. Now there's an organization called UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing, that tries to allocate these limited hearts to make sure that the individuals that are most likely to die receive them. And we have six different criteria that are currently used. Unfortunately, you can manipulate those, for example. Now, one of them is you have to have specific, what are called hemodynamic criteria. So let's say you and I have the same degree of advanced heart failure, and they treat me with medications, and they decide to put you on some mechanical circulatory support system. Well, you get to be moved up the list, and I stay right where I'm at. Individuals who would normally be treated with medications, because that's the first recommendation, they were more likely to be put on mechanical support. It went from 9% of individuals to 32%. What this means is that the physicians were gaming the system. They were advocating for their patients, which is what they should do. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean that the patient that's sickest gets moved up on the transplant list. So what these authors did is they list criteria, 46 different variables that are harder to manipulate. If I look at individuals that are going to be transplanted, and I use this, does it do a better job of discriminating who is likely to die and should get a transplant and who we can take off the list or move further down the list. And in fact, what they determine is it does. I think this is a call for the medical community to adopt these standards and say, hey, let's be fair about this. Well, clearly, the only thing that's going to prove that this is better is going to be years of data that assess these outcomes after these things are employed. UNOS was trying to do that with many organs, not just hearts, but kidneys et al. And we still have a lot of controversy about who receives them. Again, you want to get the patients that are most likely to need it most urgently. And as you mentioned, this particular model of these is already being used for kidney transplant. So all we're saying is that we need to move it for heart transplant. And in fairness to UNOS, since we've been transplanting hearts, they've gone through four different iterations of trying to find the right way to classify individuals. I think this is really good information, and I think we can begin to use it already. Well, I don't think there's any question that we need to scrutinize this whole organ allocation system more carefully and try to develop some equity with regard to who gets the organs. Yeah. Why don't we turn to the New England Journal of Medicine? This is a study that's taking a look at the utility of electronic cigarettes in helping people who self-identify as being ready to attempt smoking cessation. And do they really help? This has been an ongoing debate. When electronic cigarettes, of course, were first developed, they were touted as devices to help people stop using combustible cigarettes. So this is a study from Sweden. It randomly assigned adults who were smoking 
smoking at least five tobacco cigarettes per day who wanted to set a quit date. They were either assigned to an intervention group, which received free e-cigarettes and e-liquids, standard of care, smoking cessation counseling, and optional, but not free, nicotine replacement therapy, or to the control group, which got the counseling and a voucher, which they could use for any purpose, including nicotine replacement therapy. Their primary outcome was biochemically validated continuous abstinence from smoking at six months. And they also looked at other outcomes, including patient-reported abstinence from tobacco and from any nicotine at six months, respiratory symptoms, and serious adverse events. So they had 622 folks in the intervention group, 624 in the control. Sure enough, they validated continuous abstinence from tobacco smoking at almost 29% in their intervention group and just over 16% in the control group. Those who abstained from smoking in the seven days before the six-month visit was just shy of 60% in the intervention group and almost 40% in the control group. So at first glance, of course, it looks like these e-cigarettes are helpful in helping people to avoid combustible cigarettes. There's a caveat. In terms of things that we have available, behavioral therapy and nicotine replacement, e-cigarettes appear to be superior to them in stopping people from smoking. However, it doesn't stop people from using nicotine. People that were using e-cigarettes stopped smoking, but they didn't stop using e-cigarettes. We have to be concerned about the long-term risk associated with e-cigarettes. Exactly. And the editorialist points out that the trial doesn't assess and really can't assess how long e-cigarette use would last after the provision ends, if you have to go out there and start buying them yourself, or whether this marginal efficacy of e-cigarettes over standard care would persist over time. Also, the editorialist points out that trials are needed to compare these e-cigarettes with varenicline. Is it superior? And I want to give these investigators some credit because they're planning on to follow these patients up for five years. Are there long-term consequences? Elizabeth, I hope we're around to report on the five-year results of this particular study. Oh, wow. That's a little bit daunting. Let me just add one more thing. And that's that we've talked before about respiratory infections and the use of e-cigarettes. There's no question that there are deleterious effects of inhaling this stuff. And that's something else that's not identified in this study. They actually looked at some of the respiratory symptoms and said, gosh, if you use e-cigarettes, do the respiratory symptoms improve? And there were a couple improved, but to a large extent, they didn't get any better. Switching from combustible cigarettes to e-cigarettes didn't cure a lot of the problems like shortness of breath and cough. Right. And I think we're going to see more long-term stuff about that. Let's turn to JAMA Neurology. This is study is part of this huge stroke meeting that took place and a lot of data that came out of that. This looking at, gosh, if somebody's taking any coagulation, what happens if they have a hemorrhagic stroke? And when one looks at the types of strokes, bleeding versus what's called an ischemic stroke, where there's a clot inside the artery stops the blood flow, the intracranial hemorrhage is the deadliest type of stroke. And part of that is once you've had the bleed, it oftentimes continues to enlarge over the next several hours. We know that if you have an ischemic stroke, the earlier we can resolve that blood clot, the less likely you are to have residual symptoms and the more likely you are to do better. We've never really looked at people that have strokes due to anticoagulation bleeding. If we reverse that quickly, can that actually 
receive a benefit. And now we know that reversing it does help. Does reversing it early provide any benefit? We have these national registry called Get With the Guidelines. It's on stroke. By looking at almost a half a million individuals, they were able to identify almost 10,000 that had an anticoagulation associated intracranial hemorrhage. About three-fourths of that had the anticoagulation reversed. Median time was about four hours. And when they looked at the timing, what they discovered is if you had the anticoagulation reversed within the first 60 minutes when the patient presented, it decreased the mortality and discharge to hospice by 18%. Now, unfortunately, there was no functional benefit. Just like we try to open an artery early if someone's having a heart attack, but now we need to draw our attention to reversing anticoagulation as soon as possible in someone that has an intracerebral hemorrhage. I'd like you to speak to this issue of anticoagulation, because of course we have these new agents that are out there that are being employed for this purpose. And what are the barriers to being able to do that efficaciously in a very short period of time? Until recently, we didn't have ways of reversing these newer anticoagulants, but now we have very specific ways. And so there's not quite as much of a barrier as there used to be. They highlight that the individuals that are more likely in this particular study to have early reversal were those that were white, had a very high blood pressure, and those that had a lower stroke severity. So part of it's just rearranging our thought process and saying, hey, if there's a stroke and there's anticoagulation involved, we need to reverse that as quickly as possible. Finally, let's turn to the BMJ. This is a look at the clinical effectiveness of an online supervised group physical and mental health rehabilitation program for adults with post-COVID-19 condition is what they call it. And this study goes by the acronym REGAIN. They enrolled 585 adults who were between 26 and 86 years of age. They were all discharged from the National Health Service in the UK at least three months previously after COVID-19, and they had ongoing physical and or mental health sequela. And they were randomized to receive either this REGAIN intervention or usual care. Their best practices usual care was a single online session of advice and support with a trained practitioner. The REGAIN intervention was online over eight weeks. It had a weekly home-based live supervised group exercise and psychological support sessions. Their primary outcome was health-related quality of life using the patient-reported outcomes measurement information system preference score at three months. They also had secondary outcomes measured at three, six, and 12 months. And those included depression, fatigue, sleep disturbance, pain interference, physical function, social roles or activities and cognitive function, severity of PTSD, general health, and adverse events. They were able to show that there were improvements at three months, and those were driven predominantly by improvements in depression, fatigue, and pain interference. In their intervention group, only 47% of their participants fully adhered to the program, about 40 partially adhered, and some did not receive the intervention. They're cautiously optimistic that this is actually potentially helpful and could be broadened. However, I think there's a few caveats, and I'm sure you're going to step right into that. Talk about whether you think this could be applied generally, because obviously these are motivated individuals. They participated in the study. And despite that, less than half of them completed this online course. So One of the caveats for me is that when we examine characteristics of the participants, 88% of them had overweight or obesity. A third of them had been admitted to the ICU during their hospital admission, and their baseline health-related quality of life was low. 
So they had a bunch of characteristics at enrollment into this study that for me at least begs the question of what's due to sequela of COVID-19 infection and what was already pre-existing. And in fact, the symptoms they listed as being part of the long COVID symptoms were fatigue, shortness of breath, muscle ache. Those are things you associated with not just COVID-19, but just, I want to say, being out of shape or being obese. So they may not be related to COVID-19. They may be related to deconditioning. There was an improvement. So from that standpoint, would you recommend this course? I kind of take a look at this as like chicken soup, like why not? It seems to have a very low likelihood of causing harm. And if it actually does improve things for people, it is a fairly low intervention kind of a strategy. Yeah. And I agree. There's not really any harm associated with it. More to come on this topic, no doubt. On that note, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.